You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. You're on 3CR and welcome to Listening Notes, stories about politics, art and activism. Big thanks to Black Noise Radio for their show today. I'm Judith Peppard. And I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the land of the Kulin Nations, true owners, custodians, and caretakers of this land. And I pay my respects to elders, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that sovereignty has not been ceded. Today on Listening Notes, we're going to the moon, sort of. Space archaeologist Alice Gorman will tell us why the moon should be given legal personhood. That's coming up later in the show. But first of all, we're going to get the latest on the Save Western Port campaign. You may remember that back in July, we heard from Julia Stockett. She told us about her community's concerns about a floating regasification plant that AGL was proposing for Crib Point. Today, Victor Komorowski, a community organizer with Environment Victoria, will tell us about the community's response to the environmental effects statement put out by AGL. I caught up with Victor last week and asked him to just remind us what the project was about. So what they want to do is have a permanently moored ship, and that ship would uh, receive liquid gas from tankers that come into the bay, change the form of that to gas so that it's pipeable, and then they'd pipe that up through a pipeline that they wish to build from Crib Point all the way up to Pakenham. So basically a floating gas factory and a long pipeline about 57 kilometres long. So there's two parts of the proposal from what you're saying. Yeah, that's right. But they've sort of been wrapped up into one. They both need to go ahead in order for the project to go ahead. So AGL has prepared an environmental effects statement. Just tell me, what's the purpose of an environmental effects statement? So the environment effects statement is a framework for assessing the environmental impacts of a project like this that forces the proponents, in this case AGL um, and APA, that are a party to this as well. Is APA the group that's going to actually build a pipeline? If it goes ahead, uh, that's what APA want to do, yeah. Uh, AGL and APA have together spent millions of dollars on contractors to assess the environmental impacts of their proposal. They've put those together in a very long-form, 11,000-page document and presented that to the public to say, have a look, tell us what you think. The other part of the environmental effects statement process is that the public has the opportunity to review, experts have the opportunity to review, and an independent panel collates all of that information from AGL and APA and also from the community and from other experts, and then they make recommendations to the Minister for Planning, Minister Wynne in this case, who uh, can give the project the go-ahead or say that it can't go ahead on the basis of its environmental impacts. So this statement has been out for consultation. What kind of response has it had? An overwhelming response to this EES environment effects statement. In previous uh, EES processes for other projects, the maximum number of responses we've seen, submissions against a project has been around about 2,000. We have seen well over 10,000 submissions for this. And that's just the ones that we've been able to count because they've told Environment Victoria that they're um, making a submission. So it may be even higher than that. Are the submissions publicly available? So if I wanted to look at them online, could I have a look? They will be publicly available, but there's a couple of steps that um, the department that are receiving them need to do first. 
So, you know, at least 10,000 responses to the environmental effects statements have been received. But do you have any idea whether those statements are for or against? Those 10,000 that we know about are are definitely against because uh, Environment Victoria has been helping to run this campaign to stop this project. And those 10,000 people have told us that they support our position and they don't want the project to go ahead. There may well be thousands more submissions that we haven't yet heard about, but we are very confident that the overwhelming majority will be against this project. Uh, We know this because uh, of statements like uh, a recent one from the Mornington Peninsula uh, Shire Council Mayor Sam Hearn, who said that he has never received one bit of community feedback that they support AGL's proposal. And he has heard hundreds, if not thousands, of of community members come forward and say that they don't want this project to go ahead. What kind of range of community groups are concerned? It's everything from community members who live directly within the, the radius of the impacts of this proposal. It's also people that visit Western Port Bay, and that's many thousands of Victorians who go down to French Island and Phillip Island and just the Bay in general. Community organizations like Save Western Port, other environmentally minded organizations like the Phillip Island Conservation Society, We know that there are a number of businesses, small businesses, who have submitted against this proposal. There are organisations like Western Port Biosphere and the Dolphin Research Institute, which are locally based and have a focus in the area. And these are highly respected scientific organisations that don't involve themselves in the politics. And they both have made submissions saying that AGL's EES doesn't stack up. It doesn't properly outline the impact. So when you have those sort of high-level scientific organizations making submissions against the proposal that you know it shouldn't go ahead. You've done your own assessment at Environment Victoria. So what did you find? We focused on the fact that we don't need that gas because there are other ways that we can solve our energy problems. And we also questioned the rationale that AGL had for the project. They talked a lot in public about wanting to reduce prices of gas for people like you and me and for, for manufacturers. But we know that when you import gas from an international market, it's not cheap. So that gas isn't going to be cheap. That's quite a familiar argument we're hearing from a lot of people for those reasons you've just said, the international market, among other things. It's not the energy that we need in order to uh, reduce our energy prices and also to, to fix our environmental problems. We already have those solutions. We worked closely with a number of community leaders and community organizations to have a comprehensive view of the EES. No one personal organization tackled that whole thing. So we worked really collaboratively. And what we found together was a huge number of impacts. The marine impacts from this project are way too high to be acceptable. AGL wants to suck up about half a billion liters of seawater from Western Port Bay per day and pump that through their heat transfer system within their ship. When they pump it through their ship, they'll also chlorinate that water and then dump it back into the bay. And that chlorinated toxic wastewater just spells disaster for the marine environment. The the impacts of the chlorinated water are grossly underestimated in the EES. And what our experts have found is that um, that toxic wastewater would be really bad for small creatures that are the basis of the marine environment in a wetland, like seagrass, like fish eggs and um, phytoplankton and things like that. If you take those things out of the ecosystem, then all the things above that, they just fall away. So far-reaching effects. So far-reaching effects on the environment at Western Port. And if you've just turned on your radio, I'm speaking with Victor Komorowski. 
a community organizer with Environment Victoria, who's been working on the Save Western Port campaign. And while there are major concerns about the potential impact on the marine environment, the people who live in the area are also concerned about their well-being. Communities are understandably really upset about the potential impacts to them. This floating gas factory would come with it a lot of light and a lot of noise. In many cases, these people have been enjoying what is a, a tranquil, beautiful bay for, for decades now. If this goes ahead, the ship will be operating at very high noise levels sometimes, and it, it could be you know, any time of the day or night. AGL have said that they will get around this by notifying the local community members when noise levels will exceed a certain level, but that's just not very practical, nor is it actually a solution, because then as well as having the noise impacts, you also get a knock on the door in the middle of the night from some contractor. A really big one is that when you have a fossil fuel project like this one, it it comes with it a certain level of risk of fire and explosion. There are five or six houses that are to put it bluntly, within the blast radius of AGL's proposal. And while the risk of that actually happening is low, I mean, the consequence of something like that is is catastrophic. We saw in the news that the Andrews government plans to support new renewable energy projects, which suggests that clean energy and climate solutions will be important for Victoria's economic recovery from the COVID crisis. Supporting this AGL project, this floating gas terminal, is really not consistent with that plan. The people that this plan is good for is AGL and APA themselves, because they stand to make money from importing and selling gas. For the rest of us, that just spells more climate disaster, no cheaper energy bills, It misses an opportunity for the state government to invest more in renewable energy projects that we know are good for the planet and really good for uh, helping communities build new expertise and create new jobs in in areas that need it. Yes, I imagine tourism is a big industry, an important industry down that area. So this certainly won't do anything for that. Absolutely. Phillip Island is the second most tourism dependent region in all of Australia. Many people go down to Phillip Island to see the penguin parade, to see the whales during the whale festival. These are all things that uh, stand to lose if AGL go ahead with their project. So when are we going to know what's happening? When are we going to get the results of this? The Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning um, and Planning Panels Victoria now have all the submissions. The next phase is the public hearings phase where people who have made written submissions are able to speak about those submissions. They're going to open up that public hearings phase in the middle of October. The department will make its recommendation to the minister probably early next year. And the Minister for Planning, Minister Wynne, would have a decision on his hands at that time. It sounds like this decision is very much in the hands of the Victorian government, the hands of both the minister, Minister Wynne, and ultimately the Premier. I think what Minister Wynne and the Premier need to, to remind themselves of is this opportunity that we're in, in recovering from the COVID crisis. If we invest our money in the right places, we can create jobs for people that desperately need it right now. And we can really kickstart our transition into a better climate-safe future. Victor Komorowski, a community organiser with Environment Victoria. Coming up next, can the moon be a person? You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. 
To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes. I'm Judith Peppard, and great to have your company today. My next guest is Alice Gorman, an associate professor in space archaeology at Flinders University. Now, her research focuses on the archaeology and heritage of space exploration, and this includes things like space junk, planetary landing sites, off-Earth mining, and much more. She's written a paper entitled Can the moon be a person? As lunar mining looms, a change of perspective could protect the Earth's ancient companion. That's a rather lovely thought, the Earth's ancient companion. And with a title like that, I wanted to find out more. But first of all, I was curious about how Alice Gorman became involved in space archaeology. I was a professional archaeologist for many years. The turning point that launched me into space archaeology was doing the same thing as I did when I was a little kid. I was looking up at the night sky and I had a revelation that the night sky wasn't just stars and planets, it was also space junk and satellites and rockets and debris. In the early years when I was doing it, people thought I was a bit kooky And so part of that work has been around just establishing that this is a legitimate and credible use of archaeological techniques and theories. I've worked on space junk and space debris for a lot of that time, but I'm also working on a project which is the archaeology of the International Space Station. Me and my collaborators from the US are using archaeological techniques to work out how to design a better life for people who live in space. That's also one of the reasons I was really interested to talk to you about it because I think it's an area of research and study that people still aren't that familiar with. And as you said, people thought you were kooky initially. And and yet when I read your papers, I've read a couple now, I see how much there is to know and understand in this field and how important it is for the future. That's exactly right. You know, it's a bit of a cliche to say that we can't build good futures unless we understand where we've come from. Space is changing so rapidly at the moment. Things are moving fast. And if we are going to steer a good path to get to the point where people will be comfortable with what's happening in space... We do need to know where it comes from. And I think we need to do that using any tools at our disposal. And I would say that archaeology is one of those tools. So when you think of the quote-unquote new world, when those explorers went out, the lack of respect, the importance of having respect. And in a way, that's the word that kept coming up for me as I was reading your paper. But I just want to go back a bit now to, uh, to why you wrote it. Why did you write a paper? entitled Can the Moon Be a Person? I've been working for a couple of years now with a group called the Moon Village Association. And this is an international organisation that's interested in promoting the idea that if we're going to have uh, habitation sites on other planets, 
it's not going to just be astronauts and engineers. You actually need whole communities and you need all of the social things that come along with communities. The regional representative of the Moon Village Association in Australia, Thomas Gooch, has been exploring some of the ideas around how we think about the moon. So he wanted to explore this idea that to appropriately regulate our use of lunar resources, this comes back very much to the whole historical colonialist period where everything is a resource. So the idea that if we're going to have sustainable use of space we have to think of more creative ways to reconceive what these entities are many people would have heard that the Wanganui River in New Zealand has been granted legal personhood this relates very strongly to my interests in um, cultural heritage and natural heritage giving environmental features legal personhood it's really doing away with the separation between what we call natural and cultural in that context. Throughout the whole world of space, the Holy Grail is other life in the solar system or, you know, in the broader galaxy as well. But, you know, is there anything else? Are we alone in the solar system? So there's a huge amount of focus that's put on not contaminating other celestial bodies which might contain life, which I absolutely approve of. I think it's really important. But if there's no evidence of life or possibility that there might be life, the default position is to regard other celestial bodies in the solar system as having no intrinsic value. So their entire existence then becomes, you know, instrumental values. There are no moral obligations. When I talk about this, just, you know, conversations over the dinner table, people are often quite shocked to think that lunar landscapes wouldn't be seen as something valuable in their own right or the idea that something would not be lost if you put a mine in the middle of it people intuitively i think see that there's something unique about lunar geology lunar atmosphere lunar light that creates an environment that is attractive to to humans by its very uniqueness this gives us a, a sort of an opening to say what is unique about the moon and what should we try and like not destroy randomly because we've decided to put a, a bloody big helium-3 mine into the middle of it? At the moment, the kind of legal and international regulatory framework around what can be done on the moon, in some ways it's quite straightforward and clear. In other ways, there's a lot of ambiguity. And it's that ambiguity that Alice Gorman is concerned about because it can be exploited by countries like the U.S., And Donald Trump is on the record as saying Americans should have the right to engage in commercial exploration, recovery, and the use of resources in outer space. So I asked Alice what resources Donald Trump might be talking about. Something the moon has a lot of that the Earth does not is helium-3. So it's a helium isotope that's created by the constant bombardment of the lunar soil with cosmic rays and other high-energy particles from the rest of the solar system. We don't get that so much because we've got an atmosphere to protect us. So helium-3 has been touted as a potential energy source that would be much, much cleaner than nuclear power, for example, obviously than cleaner than fossil fuels. And the moon's got heaps of it, heaps of it. We don't yet have the technology to make it into like a power source, but this is something that's being talked about. The moon also has a series of elements that we call the rare earths. 
as far as element names go, I love these names for things like yttrium and ytterbium. These form components that you will often find, for example, in your smartphone or your computer. Or I think I've heard a little bit about that. That kind of um, rings a bell for me around the moon having those things that we may need. Yeah. That's, of course, assuming the future is smartphones and computers. <laughs> assumptions in this you're absolutely right the thing that is actually the main focus of interest at the moment is the presence at the lunar poles of frozen water the reason there is water there is because of the angle of the moon and the depth of the craters and a bunch of other factors there are these two billion year old shadows so these are places where no light has fallen for two billion years and in that deep, deep, dark cold, volatiles like, like water have become frozen. So, I mean, the, the thing you immediately think of, of course, if people are going to go and live on the moon, they will need oxygen and they will need water. But it's more than that. It's that you can also use water to make rocket fuel. So this would mean you wouldn't have to carry fuel with you and it could be used to go on to Mars. This is what the big focus of people's energy and thought is at the moment, how to mine the water ice at the lunar poles. People are starting to think, well, what will this mean? And the Committee on Space Research, which is one of those big international scientific unions, they're responsible for the planetary protection policy, which is kind of the standard that people follow for preventing contamination to places that might have life. But in the planetary protection policy, the moon is effectively considered to be of no interest. You don't need to do anything particular to protect it. There's nothing living there. It's dead. So forget, you know, it's a free-for-all. I'm happy to say this is changing a little bit because the Committee for Space Research, COSPA, it's also known as, is now starting to consider whether we might need to set aside some of these permanently shadowed regions, like a national park or something. Well, I can see that granting personhood for the moon will allow a lot of these things to be thought about. But how does the moon protect itself? Frameworks that are set up to allow that to happen. The moon is in a bit of a different situation because, first of all, everybody alive on Earth is technically a stakeholder in the moon. That's a lot of people. Out of all of those people, how would you choose who could best speak for the moon? Like, how would, how would you even start that process? I think one of the ideas around the legal personhood, it's that there would be someone on the moon's side, it, there would be somebody impartial who could make a case, for example, that a mine should not be located here or that it should act in a certain constrained way in order to protect features of the moon. So it would mean setting up a group of people, a small committee of some sort, that would look after the moon. I guess it would have to be an international group with the expertise uh, about what mining could do to what needs to be protected as, say, national park kinds of things. But at this stage, it's an idea, no movement to address them. There hasn't been any movement. I, I suppose what the Moon Village Association has been doing is trying to open up a discussion to, to get people thinking about it. One of the things I guess that intrigues me most about this is some of my research has been about lunar light and shadows and the movement of shadows across the landscape and how the light 
is dependent on the nature, the structure of lunar dust, which is very, very fine. And one of the theories about lunar dust is that it's electrostatically charged, you know, like when you rub a cat and get sparks or a balloon, and it forms these microscopic level structures that are called fairy castles, where the grains of dust sort of, like they're not densely packed together, they're actually porous, towers and bridges and and this is all at the microscopic level but these fairy castles reflect light in a very particular way so you've got this kind of link between geology and solar effects and what we see so for me i think of the moon as somewhere which has endless variety of a kind that you would never see on earth it sounds magical beautiful what a privilege to study such things i mean and to spend your time thinking about those things i also do think of the moon's association with femininity you know the menstrual cycle there's been lots of connections across the moon as woman and i also think of the earth as gaia as woman and then does the um, identification of them as female or woman allow them to be undervalued yes and i think that's absolutely true and, and certainly scholars at this stop have demonstrated that the association of you know mother earth uh, the destruction of them as resources to be used. So that is definitely part of it. NASA has said they are going to put the first woman on the moon in 2024. And this is also a reason, I think, why that is going to not just be a redressing of a historic gender imbalance, but a woman setting foot on the moon, I think, will draw on all of this sort of deep cultural mythology and associations and it will actually be something quite special that will be meaningful in a different way than a man being put on the moon. There's also all those stories about women who wanted to be astronauts and weren't allowed to. And there were women that were astronauts, of course, and uh, no woman has actually yet set foot on the moon. Yes, it is a purely male province. The archaeological sites we see on the surface of the moon are reflections of how masculinity was constructed. The entire space program at that time was constructed around male bodies and male identities. It was a little brouhaha in the early days of the US space program was whether astronauts would be allowed to pilot vessels because it could all be done on automatic pilot. So there was a bit of a battle because the astronauts felt their masculinity would be diminished if they were deprived of the ability to control the spacecraft. And in fact, a fairly similar kind of debate occurred in the USSR space program as well. You look at what's on the surface of the moon there now. It's about science and it's about technology and it's about history. And but they are the equivalent of uh, male hunting sites that, for example, the archaeologist Lewis Binford studied in the Arctic Circle. So I think it will be very different when women leave their imprint on the moon. We've experienced the pillaging of Aboriginal lands and culture for mining interests, and we're feeling the consequences. Do you think giving the moon personhood would help us avoid that? In some ways, legal personhood would take the place of an environmental management regime, which is absent for space. We, we effectively don't have one because the concept of environment is not really very well developed in, in space. It's just a simple way of making that case. So we could go 
and look at how that's worked out. 2017, that legislation was passed and we would have to reconsider what the moon is. This is kind of what the idea is inviting us to do, to think about it from that perspective, to think about it also in a solar system perspective. How does the moon fit into the entire solar system? For example, the permanently shadowed regions I mentioned, there's only two other places they occur in the solar system, on Mercury and on the dwarf planet Ceres in the asteroid belt. So it's about thinking differently. It may or may not prove to be a practical way forward, but at least by thinking through all of these issues, we give ourselves an opportunity to break out of those very strict Western colonialist perspectives that everyone knows have not served us well. Alice Gorman, an Associate Professor in Space Archaeology at Flinders University. And I'll put a link to her paper on the website. And there are links in that paper to a public forum on the moon, if you're interested in hearing more. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. We're coming up to the end of Listening Notes now, and a big thank you to my guests, Victor Komorowski and Alice Gorman, and to you for joining me on 3CR this afternoon. And do stay tuned, because that wonderful show, Diaspora Blues, with Big Juan Basto, is coming up next. Stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, and I'll catch you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.